How Your World Works is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. You can sign up now for a no-risk trial and $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code WORLD. That's Stamps.com promo code WORLD. Okay, let's go back to the American Civil War. Katie, you are on a Union ship. Oh, I am? Yes, you are on uh, the USS Housatonic, and you are part of the northern blockade of Charleston Harbor. Okay. So you're out on the ship, and there's nothing around you. Everything seems peaceful. You're kind of watching the water. You know, I mean, you are in the middle of a war. And then you see this thing that looks like a plank of wood approaching the ship. Like driftwood? Yeah, exactly. It's like a plank of wood that's just sort of, for some reason, moving towards you like it's alive. Okay, I don't even know if I'd notice that, but okay. Well, well, they did, actually, on this ship, and they sounded the alarm somewhat bewilderedly, but it's too late, and the plank of wood gets about 10 feet away, and then, boom, your hull is burst, and your ship begins to sink. Now, if you're the watchman on that ship, which you, which you were. I was. You are probably wondering, what the hell was that plank of wood that blew up the ship? Dark magic. <laughs> Dark, yes. <laughs> what, witch, what witchery is this? <laughs> no idea. Okay, so these days we might explain what happened to you by saying that you had just become a victim of a disruptive technology. In fact, you just got disrupted in a pretty harsh way because you were just on the wrong side of the first submarine attack in history. Yeah, that plank of wood you saw, that was actually the top of that first primitive sub. Although who the real victims are is kind of debatable. You see, shortly after that explosion, the sub begins taking on water and it sinks, taking its entire crew of eight men with it. Oh no. Yeah, disruptive technologies can be hard on everyone. Today on the show, in honor of the recent launch of the most advanced submarine ever built, the USS John Warner, we take a deep dive on submarines. That's right. We'll learn a little bit about their history, how they work, as well as what's new and what's different on this modern submarine. And we'll answer this riddle for you. Why is it that you gain weight on a submarine? Plus, we're going to take a trip to the Suez Canal in Egypt. That canal just underwent a massive expansion and was just open to traffic. And we'll play a game of Stupid or Amazing, wherein we look at a new product on the market and ask ourselves that very important and surprisingly complicated question. Today, we consider a product that could actually be really useful on a submarine, a water sensor that can detect leaks. I'm Jack Dillon. And I'm Katie McDonald. And this is How Your World Works. From Popular Mechanics. Okay, so let's go back to the Civil War for a moment and understand what happened to the Housatonic. It had just become one of the earliest victims of a new frontier in warfare, the submarine attack. Now, the earliest record of submarine was actually decades before in the 1790s. A guy named David Bushnell had been working on something called the Turtle, but this device only fit one person, and it did not submerge entirely, nor was it ever used in warfare. Now, when the Civil War began, engineers in both the South and the North were interested in the Turtle's potential. If you could get a ship with a small crew to travel undetected underwater, you would have a major advantage. Yeah, I mean, this is basically like having an invisibility cloak, right? It allows you to walk right up to your enemy and then attack them. Yeah, so both the North and the South began experimenting with this. The North designed a ship called the Alligator. Meanwhile, the South worked on the Hunley. As you can imagine, this was dangerous work, and the crew on these ships, even just in practice runs, didn't have a great survival rate. Yeah, Hunley himself, the designer of the sub, died in such an exercise. So we needed to talk to an expert in this arena, someone who not only knows the history of subs, but also lived it. We spoke to Jim Chrisley, who was a submariner for 20 years and has written several books on submarines, to tell us a little bit more about them. The reason the Alligator didn't have a whole lot of uses is because there weren't a whole lot of Confederate ships to attack. 
but there were Union ships for the Confederates to attack. The Hunley itself had all of the things you need to have a submarine. It was watertight. It could surface it submerged because it had ballast tanks to let water in and expel water. And it had a method of propulsion. Propulsion was people on a hand crank driving a screw. How many people? Uh, I think there were eight. The, the weapon that was used is, is called a spar torpedo. And it's actually an explosive charge on the end of a long wooden pole. And it had a percussion cap at the end. So when you rammed it up against something, it would explode. So basically, the Civil War in general, the bloodiest war in American history, also not a great time to man a sub. But it did demonstrate the potential of a technology that would eventually evolve into something pretty spectacular from an engineering point of view. First, let's start with the most basic principle of what makes a sub a sub, diving. Think about it. For all human history, the goal in designing ships had been not to sink. But with subs, not only do you need to build a ship that's watertight, but you want that to go underwater, which you can ask any kid with a beach ball in a pool, is not easy. Containers with air in them do not want to stay underwater. Air is lighter than water, and the laws of buoyancy force it up. So how exactly do you make a sub sink? They're called ballast tanks. Inside the pressure hull is air, and that's atmospheric pressure, and that's where the crew and, and all that kind of stuff is. And then you've got ballast tanks, which on modern American submarines are at each end. The ballast tanks are flooded full of water to submerge the submarine. And then you either pump the water out or you introduce high-pressure air, compressed air, and you blow the water out. Once you've figured out how to do that, then the only problem is how big to make them so that they're efficient, how to get the water in and get the water out as fast as you want to so that you surface and submerge as fast as you want to. So ballast tanks and pressure hulls, a propeller, these are all basic components of a sub that are still the same today. So common misconception number one, I'll call it common though it might have been just me, submariners, unlike divers, do not need to worry about things like the bends because the pressure in the hull isn't changing as they dive. It is the same pressure as the air we breathe now. And we should point out that we're talking specifically today about military subs, which actually have a relatively low diving depth, maybe around 400 feet, that's classified still. Those subs do need to worry about pressure, but it's the pressure that could crush their outer hull, causing them to implode. So as much as these basic techniques worked, there were still some major issues that it would take decades for submarines to overcome. One big challenge you might have guessed was air. The Civil War sub, the Hunley, it could stay submerged for about 30 minutes before needing to come up for air. Remember, you've got eight crewmen down there pedaling fiercely on a hand crank and only a short amount of time before they run out of oxygen. Another problem was speed. A hand-driven propeller didn't go super fast, so the Hunley could only travel about two knots, or about two and a half miles per hour. So after the Civil War, submarines are seen as an interesting concept, but not really a viable option for warfare. Remember, they tend to kill most of their crew whenever you use them, and they were only really successfully used by the Confederates, who lost the war. But they were interesting enough to pique the interest of an engineer named John Holland. And what Holland comes up with is a way to solve at least the propulsion problem. So at this time in the late 1800s, combustion and steam engines are in use. But the problem with putting an engine into a submarine is that the engines, whether it's steam, which uses coal, or combustion, which uses diesel, they rely on a steady supply of air. And what Holland comes up with is pretty ingenious. He had a gasoline engine, which used air from the outside, and ran the submarine when it was on the surface and an electric motor attached to a battery, which ran the submarine when it was submerged. 
and the electric motor could also be used as a generator. So when the engine was turning the shaft that went to the propeller, the electric motor, which was on that shaft, could be used as a generator to charge the batteries. So the whole thing worked really nicely for 1900. So, owing to the electric battery, these new submarines now had the horsepower to travel at about five knots, and they could submerge for several hours at a time on that charge, depending on how fast they were going. The air problem was solved by bringing down tanks of compressed air, which would be released at regular intervals. But this altered cabin pressure, so air would also need to be removed. And despite these advances, Jim Chrisley says that it wasn't really until World War I that the Germans demonstrated just how effective and lethal submarines could be by menacing Allied merchant ships. After 1914, people said, okay, submarines are a viable offensive weapon. Now we need to figure out how to use it better. So it went from one engine to four engines, bigger batteries, more people, and now people uh, again try to figure out how are we going to use this, this thing. So in this period of development, you have a lot of things that are being added to submarines. All kind of new electronics, like sonar for tracking other subs and radio are added. The first self-propelling torpedoes are added. And eventually even air conditioning is added in the 1930s to deal with the humidity problem. Designing a sub like this is like a never-ending set of challenges for engineers. But there's one big thing that submarines are also carrying with them now as well, fuel. There's one other thing you needed to carry aboard the ship, the submarine, that you don't need now and that's a lot of fuel oil to run engines. American submarines during World War II carried about 250,000 gallons of diesel fuel. So you've got to put that in tanks. Your ballast tanks actually have to be a little bit larger because you have to sink not only the submarine's pressure hull, but you have to sink the fuel oil tanks. Now, despite all of these advances, submarines were still relatively slow during this period. In fact, at this point in World War II, the submarine was really still mostly a surface ship, submerging only when it wanted to attack or evade detection. But advancements in radar were beginning to catch up with submarines, making surface detection more likely. So they were increasingly being forced to dive. Something that provided a solution to both of these problems of speed and stealth was the snorkel. The snorkel is a pipe that you've stuck up above the water and you sucked in air to run your diesel engines. So now you had diesel engine power, and you could go faster for a long time. The problem was you still had something above the surface. The solution to the problem was to find some way of propelling the submarine completely submerged that was efficient, and that was a nuclear propulsion plant. So here now really, I think, is where we see the biggest turning point in submarine technology, nuclear power. Now, I have to say that every time I heard the phrase nuclear submarine on the news, I always thought something like, isn't that kind of overkill? I mean, they already have a sub. Do they really need to add a nuclear reactor to that sub? It seemed like the military equivalent of hot dog crust pizza. But it turns out, no, this is not like hot dog crust pizza at all. Because basically, as we mentioned, submarines have all of these crazy challenges to overcome, from fuel to air to speed to stealth. And nuclear power, it turns out, is really good at dealing with all of these challenges. The nuclear propulsion plant was chosen for a couple of reasons. Number one, a marine steam plant was, in the 1950s, a fairly mature technology. Its steam turbines, reduction gear, and all the things that went with it had been used for 50 years. 
at the end of the Second World War, we had the possibility of using a nuclear reactor. So the nuclear reactor is used to heat water. Subs have no problem finding water. And that water is converted into steam. And that steam can turn turbines like a propeller or electric generators. And now the ship has a steady abundance of electricity for all of its needs and a lot more horsepower. A nuclear sub can travel at 25 knots. One of the problems you had on a diesel submarine is you ran out of air. Well, on a nuclear submarine, you make your own air. You take seawater and you run it through a steam distillant plant. You need fresh water in the submarine, both for feed water for the steam system and for the cruise use. So you've got fresh water. Then you put that fresh water in a thing called an oxygen generator. You pass electricity through the fresh water and it separates H2O that it, it normally is into hydrogen and oxygen. Throw away the hydrogen and you put the oxygen into air tanks. And when you need air, you bleed it into the ship. So I just want to point out that, of course, not all subs are nuclear now, just the very big ones like the John Warner. In fact, there are many subs that still use diesel in service today and still use snorkels. But you can see why this was such a game changer. And it was right in time for the Cold War. America, of course, was not the only nation that developed this technology. The Soviets had it too. And during a contact defined by spying, nuclear power, and round-the-clock subterfuge, what could be a better tool than a nuclear submarine? After World War II, with the Soviet buildup, uh, with the massive, massive number of submarines they had, uh, we paid a lot more attention to submarine versus submarine. If we want to find out how quiet somebody else's submarine is, and we don't want them to know that we found out, the easiest way to find out is to go where they are with one of our submarines and track them and record their noise. Now, you would assume that we would be doing that, and you would be right. We've done it since World War II, 24-7, 365. During the Cold War, there was no sinking of ships or sub-versus-sub combat like there was in World War II, but there was plenty of the stalking and evading game that Jim Chrisley describes. In the arms race of the Cold War, each advancement in submarine technology brought with it new challenges to overcome. Better sonar capabilities meant the need for engines to run even quieter. Being able to stay submerged for longer made the enemy more difficult to track. And of course, the weapons became much more deadly. Submarines could now launch rockets powerful enough to travel great distances and be armed with nuclear warheads, which meant that submarines now had a new role as the nation's mobile nuclear launch pads. If you're old enough to have watched Crimson Tide or The Hunt for Red October in theaters, I don't need to get into this. If you're a little bit younger, you might not even be aware that these subs are still out there today, ready to fire. Clearly, subs today have come a long way, and their role continues to evolve along with their design. Basic fundamentals like ballasts have stayed the same, and periscopes, don't forget periscopes. Well, as you might have guessed, they are no longer hollow tubes with mirrors and glass that can let water in when they break. They are now called photonics mass, and they are essentially like the world's most high-tech GoPros. They can emerge and capture huge amounts of data quickly across different spectrums. But I still wanted to know, what about human beings? I mean, we haven't evolved as quickly as subs have. We still have all the same limitations. So how are we faring? I asked Jim Chrisley what life was like on a submarine. Your whole world's inside that submarine. All the things you do are inside that submarine. You get the ball scores and you get stuff from outside. 
but until you surface, that's that's your whole world. Some people don't mind that. I didn't mind it. Some people don't like it, and they don't stay in the Navy. They don't stay on submarines. Now, if you talk to your basic young sailor, uh, he'll complain about it vehemently. But that's because young sailors complain about everything. Right now, the only limitation on submarines staying submerged is actually food. They have all the energy they need and can clean their own air, but eventually a ship needs to resupply food for the crew. They can stay down for about 190 days. Um, can you tell me like, what food is like on a sub? Great. Really? That's, that's one of the perks of being on a submarine. The food is great. Really? The food, the food is so good that you can gain weight really easy at sea. If you've got to be closed up inside that steel tube with 140 guys who may, may or may not be your friends, you've got to have some perks. Okay. One of, one of them is food. <laughs> you know what um, hot sticky buns are? Yes. Okay. There's nothing in, better in the world than the smell of hot sticky buns going through the submarine every night at midnight. That's awesome. So there you have it. It's not enough that they added a nuclear reactor to one of the most complicated feats of engineering ever designed. They even made it smell like cinnamon. So these days we are living in an on-demand world. Everything is on demand. You right now are listening to this podcast on demand. I myself have been told I'm a very demanding person. So why am I and you still dealing with limited hours at the post office when we could be getting postage on demand with stamps.com? So let me tell you about something I'm not super proud of. I had this letter that I needed to mail. I have some checks that I need to send my landlord and I have been putting this off for way too long. The checks are frankly late at this point and there's just been no good time to go stand in line at the post office for 20 minutes during my lunch break. I have things to do at lunch that I enjoy like lunch. But had I already signed up for stamps.com, I could have avoided all of this. I could have bought official US postage for any letter or package using my own computer and printer. Unlike the post office, stamps.com is always convenient and never close. You can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. So now you and me both can use the promo code WORLD to get this special offer. We can get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a free digital scale and up to $55 in postage. So don't wait. Why have we waited so long? We should go to stamps.com and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in WORLD. That's stamps.com, promo code WORLD. And let's get those checks to my landlord. He's a good man. Okay, so if you've been following the news lately, you might have seen that Egypt recently opened an expansion of the Suez Canal. Kevin, you wrote a story about this and the Panama Canal expansion in the September issue. What's going on here? Yeah, so at the time we uh, we decided to write this story, it was because the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, which are the most famous canals in the world, right, were both being expanded. And then there's this third canal in Nicaragua that supposedly is going to be built in the next five years or so. What's really interesting about this is that while the Panama Canal expansion has been underway for like seven or eight years now, Egypt did this in one year. Really? Wow. Okay, so why was Egypt able to do it so much faster? So the interesting thing is that 
well, the Panama Canal, it goes between the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and the water levels on either side is not the same. And in between, there's a lake that's elevated above sea level. So the Panama Canal has a lock system to raise ships up to the level of the lake and the rest of the canal, and then lower them back down when they get to the other ocean at right. the other end. Okay. Um, so that takes a lot of work because the bottleneck that they have, that both canals have, is that ships have just gotten so much bigger. But in Panama, instead of just like widening you know, a big trench through the land, they actually have to build a new lock complex. In Egypt, they didn't have to do that. So the problem in Egypt was that the canal... Um, it's just level. There's no lock system, but it's not wide enough for these huge ships to pass each other. The way this works currently is on any day, there's three convoys that pass through, two from the south and one from the north, I think. Might be might be flipped. Um, but there's areas where the ships can pull off to let the other convoy bypass them. They can't just go side by side. It's not two lanes. It's one lane. So in Suez, they built kind of a second lane of traffic that runs for 45 miles in the main canal. It's so not they're, the they're widening the canal, essentially. Well, they're... Th- in some places they widened it, but what they're actually doing is building like a separate second canal alongside the first one. In some places they're just in one body of water, but in some places it's actually like a second thing that you pull off and go through. What's what's incredible though is that they actually were initially it was supposed to take three years. The president who's in place right now, who you know took power I think th- two years ago, um, he said no, we're doing it in one, and it wasn't wasn't really clear if they were actually going to be able to do that. We had a line in an early draft of the story that you know said kind of in parentheses like. They're saying it's going to be open in August of 2015, but we don't know if it's going to happen. And during the construction process, they're really opaque about it. I actually called uh, a scholar from an American university who's from Egypt and studies Egypt. And he said he was really concerned because the government wasn't actually sharing any information about the project at all. I was trying to find out, is this going to be on schedule? Is it really doable? He said, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sharing anything. But they just inaugurated it with like total pomp and circumstance huh. i mean the president was like on a ship sailing through like hung with banners there were jets flying overhead and i think i saw something about like dancers um so i mean it's a big deal for them it's several billion dollars of their economy and it costs several billion dollars what do you mean when you say it's several billion dollars of their economy yeah so right now actually the, the suez canal contributes two percent of egypt's gdp and in addition to expanding it which i mean obviously they're hoping that as more ships can transit and it's going to cut the transit time down so more can go through each day they think it's going to cut down like 12 cut like 12 hours off of the transit time um, but they're also building this logistics hub on the spot because there's so much international cargo going through and the idea is that that logistics hub also is going to contribute i think i've heard like up to a quarter of the gdp itself when it's complete how does that work because i never thought about this are they charging the ships money like what happens if i want to use a canal it's like a pay highway yeah so it's a it's basically like a term or something you pay a toll the toll depends on um the amount of cargo you're bringing through and I, i think maybe also what type it's weird when you start looking into global shipping because you know, so much has changed like about the goods that we are, are shipping around and the boats that we're using, but obviously the land masses are the same. I mean, there's kind of still the same routes available there always used to be. And if you just look at a map of the planet and you think about where all the people live, you can kind of see pretty quickly that there's really not even a next best way to get stuff between, say, India or China and Europe. I mean, this cuts so much time off, so everybody uses it. All right. Well, Kevin Dupsik, thanks for telling us about it. Yeah, thank you, Jack. Well, it's time for another edition of our favorite game, Stupid or Amazing. I'm your host, Kevin Dupsik. Joining me today, uh, Popular Mechanics Senior Editor, Andrew Dolcali. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also joining me is Social Media Editor, Rami Zabara. Yeah. All right, guys. So today we're talking about the MyD-Link 
Wi-Fi water sensor. So my D-Link is D-Link's smart home products, and this water sensor is just a small round device. You plug into an outlet, and it has like a lead wire that comes off of it with a water sensor at the end. So the idea is that you plug this into the wall, and then you put the lead wire someplace where there might be potential for a leak or a flood, like next to your washing machine or your hot water heater. And when water touches it, it both sounds an alarm and sends push notifications to your phone or even can alert other D-Link devices if you have more of them. We want to know, is this thing stupid or amazing? Andrew Dokali, you're already laughing. I am because I'll go ahead and start because I, I want to hate this product so, so much. I just, I hate all the dumb smart products that are coming out now. I hate the smart egg tray that tells you whether you're running out of eggs. Um, but this makes a lot of sense to me. You know, my brother, uh, when he had his townhouse, had his hot water heater break and flooded his hardwood floor basement. And, um, and he had to replace the whole thing, and he did it. And lo and behold, a year later, instead of his hot water heater breaking, he had a tree root break through <laughs> the pipe connecting him to the city's water, and it flooded again, and he had to replace it again. Now, I don't know what would have happened if he had gotten an alert. I don't know if he would have gone home and just started bailing out water or what, but at least he would have known it was happening, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So I have a question. Does the sensor tell you when there's water leaking from behind the walls or is it only when it happens like outside, like in your apartment near the sensor? Um, because I, f I find that it could be really helpful if it could tell me if there's water that's about to come through the walls or the ceilings before it happens. I think it's direct contact. Yeah, it has yeah. to touch the sensor. And I will say, so I, most of the things that we've played this game with, I've had like an immediate reaction. Like this is so stupid. Or it's incredible. And this one, I'm actually pretty on the fence. And it's for reasons like that. So I have had, I've flooded my kitchen a couple years ago. And it seems to me like if you have like a slow week leak from your hot water heater and this thing detects it, that could be really helpful. But when I, when I flooded my kitchen, it was because I didn't know how to tighten the faucet handle and just water exploded everywhere. And I was like holding a pan over it. And so I was stuck in one spot. And I can only imagine that if the water sensor was just sounding an alarm at me and my phone was blowing up notifications while I couldn't move because my kitchen was flooding, it would immediately become stupid. Well, yeah, but that's defeat. That's not the purpose of it. You need a smart idiot device or something because that's just not knowing how to do plumbing. Like this thing is the meant to tell you if you're not there, you know? Well, that's a fair point. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a heavy sleeper. And so I feel like I would definitely need, uh, something to something loud to wake me up, uh, in the event of a leak or a flood. Otherwise, I wouldn't know until I woke up in the morning and saw, you know, my basement flooded or something. I think the basement's a huge opportunity, too, because so many people have leak like basements that can get really leaky or flooded fast. So here's a story. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, deep asleep in my bed, and my neighbor's bathtub overflowed, and the water started seeping through uh, my ceiling. And it was pouring pretty heavily onto my mattress, my books, my records, everything. Um, and I didn't notice until my side of the mattress was soaked, which was too late. Uh, so I guess that would have been a good time to have an alarm tell me to wake up and do something about it. It does seem though, like you know, if you if you had the sensor, where where do you right. put the where do you put it? Yeah, where yeah, you're right. That wouldn't have been that would yeah, have been I a mean, great use case for. Yeah, unless for you can it. somehow like get it up to the ceiling so they can feel the water up there. Or I mean, or if it was on the floor and it felt how much water, water was dripping. collecting? Because also, if it, it was, was that much lot. water, it was enough how that all did my you pots... sleep through so much of it. <laughs> well, so because because it was pouring onto one side of my mattress, and it woke me up once the mattress got soaked enough that I felt it on my side of the mattress. 
Gotcha. Sounds don't wake me up. Did you immediately worry that maybe your roommate had wandered in or something like that at first? <laughs> no, I didn't know what to think at first. Yeah. I'm telling you guys, like when I say water I'm a on deep you or sleeper, something. So you need like the my D link, like alarm clock with the hammer that hits you in the head. <laughs> I think an alarm would do. I just, you know, needed to catch the leak early. When you first brought this product to me, I, for some reason, thought that it was a way to detect water damage inside the walls or like, you know, like maybe a sensor that, that can tell you when there's you know like it would sense like moisture in the air or right something. exactly because i was worried for the longest time that there was like moisture affecting my like my lungs when i slept there, there was like mildew or something and you know i'd i'd have to like order a, a mold test and all that so i thought maybe this was a good way to catch that early but this just seems like cool but maybe not that I think it's effective. cool. I think it's cool in the right circumstance, right. Out, kind of out of the way. The one unfortunate thing is just kind of the way it hangs out of a wall, kind of like this, just wire just yeah, extending it out. Yeah, doesn't sound like it looks really nice. Yeah, you just yeah. kind of stick it there. The promotional video or picture has it right in front of a washer and a dryer, and it just kind of looks awkward. Yeah. Um, I also wish that there was a way to not have to have it be plugged in, if that makes sense, because I'd like to be able to, like, have a little bit more flexibility and freedom on where I'd like to place it. I'd love to be able to have one of these in my freezer, actually. Because I have that weird situation where when you close, uh, close the, the fridge. fridge, the freezer door pops open. Every now and then I come home and it's been melted. I don't know if the smart refrigerators out there now let you know if that's happened, but yeah, I would like to know that. Well, it does say that you can extend it using just like a standard phone cord, but it seems right, like it, you it shouldn't be that hard to make it wireless. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I think that I think that it would also be um, helpful if you suspect that there is a leak somewhere, but you don't know exactly where, you know, you can leave it there and have it. But then again, I mean, a close inspection would probably do the, do the job anyway. <laughs> so you're not, you're not convinced. Not I mean, you're not running not out and buying no. this thing. I'm not going to go buy this thing. Okay. So your vote stupid. My vote would be amazing if I had a home with a basement and a, wa a hot water heater downstairs. Okay. I, I think I vote amazing. I think I've been, I think I've been swayed. Um, I say moderately stupid. <laughs> but yeah, I wish there was some middle ground yeah. on this game where I could be like, I'm Every, impressed. Somewhat, I'm, I'm tired disagree. of you lukewarm people. Everybody, <laughs> everybody's always trying to qualify their answers. Just be decisive. It's stupid. Amazing. I say amazing. You voted right. off the island, Rami. Yeah. Oh well. All right. It'll be a, it'll be a while before you come back. You need and to work on your playing. room anyway. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Yep. And that's our show. Today's episode was produced by me, Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers of Panoply, as well as Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief, Ryan D'Agostino. And you can subscribe to us, of course, in iTunes. Please leave us a comment. That really helps us. That's right. It really does help us. It does. I don't think we have any comments. Have you checked? Uh, no, I also haven't written one, which maybe I should. Mupp has a comment. Do we have to call it Mupp? We don't have to call it. No one calls it Mupp but us. That's insider... Go. Yeah, Mutt, by the way, is the most useful podcast ever. Popular Mechanics' other podcasts, which we also hope you'll subscribe to on iTunes. And uh, you can leave comments there, too. Yeah, they already have one. To see a link to the product we talked about in today's edition of Stupid or Amazing, go to popularmechanics.com slash podcast. Also, if you visit our website, you can subscribe to the magazine. You can get the print and digital edition for just $13 a year. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.